Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'll try it again. Good morning. Good job. It's the 11 o'clock service, so you guys should be, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, as my grandma used to say. My name is Corey Johnston. I'm the trail, um, I'm Trailhead's church planting resident, and what that means is that um, I'm here with my team. We've been here for about a year, and we're learning how to plant a church, and I myself am being coached and trained as to how to be a better pastor, a better preacher, a better overall leader for the church that we're planting and hoping to launch our church um, in early 2014. And so it's an honor to, to be here with you all today. It's an honor to share in, in God's Word and be able to preach um, specifically on Isaiah 53. This is just some of the most rich and beautiful scripture that, that we have to show God, God's sovereign plan over, over the world and, and, and just His plan to, to pursue and push forth His mission to teach people about Jesus. And so um, we've been doing this series called The Shadows of Christ, as, as many of you know. Uh, we've been at it about two months now, and we've got to go through a lot of narratives. And, and today, Isaiah 53 is a narrative, um, but it's also what's called a prophecy. And so let me explain to you um, a bit how prophecy works. This is the way my seminary professor explained it to me. Um, seminary is just a fancy word for, you know, grad school for Jesus. And so... 
Uh, he's got to put a spin on it, you know. He said it's kind of like this, and it's fitting because I just did this. So he said prophecies are like going or seeing the Rocky Mountains. Um, and two weeks ago, my wife and I and our kid and, and our two best friends and, and their kiddo actually got to go to the Rockies. So for the first time, this professor actually made sense to me outside of seminary. And so as, we're, as you're going towards the Rockies, how many of you have been there? Have you seen any hands? There's a few, right? How many of you have seen pictures maybe of the Rockies at some point in your life? You've You've probably seen that. We're probably all together on that. Well, as you're driving towards the Rockies, as you know if you've been there and as you've seen in pictures, you kind of get a vision for the Rocky Mountains as you hit Colorado and Denver, and you, you see the mountains are off in the distance, and they're a little fuzzy. And as you get closer and closer to the Rockies, you realize that, that, that they're huge. I mean, they're massive, and you can see more detail, and you see that there's snow on the bluffs, and, and it goes from just being off in the distance six hours later to being like 300-foot rock faces, and it's jagged, and it's awesome, just a beautiful display of creation. And then when you get up, as we did, we went up into Rocky Mountain National Park. We were 12,100 feet above sea level, and it was just like we're just sitting in like the majesty that is the Rocky Mountains. Just, it's beautiful, like 30-foot evergreens look like shrubs at most when you're that high, and rivers look like creeks, like small streams, and lakes look like ponds or puddles. I mean, it's just a beautiful display of creation whenever you're up there. And if you know anything um, about the Rockies, you will soon find out that there's a thing called altitude sickness that you also can get whenever you go up there. I knew nothing about this, um, but I get there, and my hands are, like, shaky, and I'm getting nauseous. And my wife and I have this great idea to, um, to sprint, to race to the restrooms. I quickly learned that at 12,000 feet, you don't sprint because you will feel like you're going to die whenever you get to your destination. And, and we did, and we got there, and we are like, oh, we're going to pass out. But we learned that our bodies act differently, and we actually have to act accordingly. Okay, so I share all that to say that's how prophecy works. And so Isaiah has been given this prophecy of what's called the suffering servant. He doesn't know everything about the suffering servant, but he has an idea of what he's going to be like. And he sees the suffering servant off in the distance, right? And he's, he's going to tell Israel, this suffering servant is coming. We are on a journey to meet this suffering servant. And then Jesus comes and perfectly fulfills the role of the suffering servant. And that's our Rocky Mountain experience, right? We get to see the, the vastness and the majesty of who Jesus is in the suffering servant, okay? And then there's a call to the world and a call to Israel that they need to act accordingly. They need to act with this knowledge in mind that Jesus has come and perfectly fulfilled the role of the suffering servant. That's what we see today in this text. It's also kind of the outline of, our, of my message is I'm going to try to keep with the same illustration that we're going, to, we're going to start our journey in Isaiah 53, and we're going to break through and look through this prophecy. And then we're going to have our Rocky Mountain experience. We're going to see how Jesus is the better suffering servant, how he is the suffering servant. And then we'll end with some application, and we'll see how we need to act accordingly with all of us, all of this in mind. You guys with me together on this? Does this make sense? I see some heads. Good. And so what we're going to see is that Isaiah wrote this this. Um, this prophecy, he's been given this prophecy 700 years before Jesus is born. And it's called the Song of the Suffering Servant. And, and Isaiah is not only going to predict the death of Christ, but he's going to remind Israel and remind us of why the suffering servant had to die in our place. And the reason is this. It's we belittle sin to such a great extent that we actually belittle our need for God in our lives. And we belittle the grace that's been given to us. And we most certainly belittle the extent to which Jesus had to be crushed 
in our place as our substitute. This is what Isaiah is going to be telling the people. This is what we're going to see. And so my big idea for this morning, for the whole sermon, is that, is that the suffering servant had to die for the suffering sinner. That's what it's going to be all throughout the text today. And so for those of you that are in Christ, that, that you believe um, in God, you're following him, um, my hope for you today is that I can maybe restore or maybe just renew your vision of who God is, and in doing so, um, just help renew and restore your vision for the grace that you've been given um, in Christ. And for those of you that are here this morning um, that, that don't believe in the gospel, and you don't believe in who Jesus is, I want to first and foremost say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We planted Trailhead Church for you so that you could come and be in community and ask hard questions and, and learn some of the great truths about who Jesus is. And my hope for you is that we could maybe for the first time um, just kind of give you a vision for who Jesus is and who God is and why it is that he had to be crushed um, in your place as well. Um, and so before we get into the sermon, let me just pray for us. I mean, it's been a really hard week of preparation just setting in Isaiah 53. And so, um, so let me pray for me and pray for you guys as well. God, we love you and we give you all the, all the praise, God. And as we're going to see, you, you deserve and you, by default, to just get all the glory. And so, um, God, I pray for myself as I'm, as I'm preaching. It's been just a brutal week, just setting in the truth of what Isaiah 53 has to say. And I pray for those, Lord, that are here that, that are so familiar with Isaiah 53 that, that you would restore and just renew their vision for you. And I, I pray for God, those, God, that are here that, um, that don't believe in you. They don't submit to who you are. And I pray that their hearts, that by the Spirit, it would, their hearts would be opened and that they would see why it is you had to send their son. Um, send your son for them and, and for all of us that are here in this room. And as always, God, we pray that, um, that they would just hear a far greater sermon than this is actually being given, uh, just by your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we get started, I need to look at, I'm going to tell you a story from Isaiah 6. And so I want us to kind of look at this like we're packing our luggage as we're moving out on this journey to the Rockies to see who this suffering servant is. So we're just going to prepare with Isaiah 6 to get the context for Isaiah 53. And I just want to show you how it is that Isaiah has the authority to give this prophecy in Isaiah 53. So here's what happens in Isaiah 6. Um, I'm not going to put it on the overhead. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to paraphrase. Isaiah has been allowed to, to see the vision of who God is. And it says in there that Isaiah looked into the heavens and he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And it, said that his tr- it says that his train of his robe, like where I had to wear a robe, the part that hangs on the ground, the train of his robe filled the temple. Filled the temple. Like if I were to have a robe on and the train of my robe were to fill this room, but to a far greater extent. It says it, it filled the temple and there were seraphim there, which are angels with six wings. We don't know exactly what, what they look like. It doesn't tell us. It just says there are seraphim. They're on fire. They have six wings. And God is so full of glory, so full of perfection, the seraphim, these angels, can't even look at him. And with two of their wings, they have to cover their face. And with two of their wings, they have to cover their body to shy away from his perfection. And with the other two wings, they're staying afloat. And they have no words to describe his glory. Their cadence is simple. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And they're just shouting this back and forth to one, ever, to one another because it's indescribable what they're getting to see here. And Isaiah gets a glimpse into this. Just a beautiful display of God's glory. And it says an angel comes and, and touches Isaiah's lips and it says, see now your sins have been 
forgiven. And Isaiah recognizes this is only because of God. And Isaiah says, whoa, to me. Like, and the, the language there is actually that of Isaiah coming unraveled before the Lord. Coming just completely undone and recognizing his sin and, and Israel's sin and, and their brokenness in the, in, the, in the eyes of who this glorious God is and the perfection of who he is. Isaiah says, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among unclean people. And then that angel comes and touches his lips and he's cleansed. And then and Isaiah goes from woe to me to here I am, send me. Whenever God says, who's going to share this message? Who's going to take this message to the ends of the earth? And Isaiah knows that it has to be him. And he says, here I am, send me. This is Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet, his commissioning ceremony. Could you imagine being there and seeing what he got to saw? It would have just been awesome to see this. And so that's what gives Isaiah, as we move into Isaiah 53, page 613. If you could pull out a, a pew Bible that's out there. We're going to be referencing this all the way through. It'll help you follow along. This ceremony, this seeing who God is, is what gives Isaiah the, the power, the authority to, to say what he says in Isaiah 53. So let's start. 53, excuse me, 53, verse 1. Isaiah says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? He's saying, In relation to what I just saw, None of you are paying attention to what I've been telling you as a prophet. That's what Isaiah is saying. Right? Who has seen what, or who has believed what they have heard from us? Go on. on. And, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Like, I just, what I experienced of God, no one has experienced. Who has really seen the Lord? Verse 2. For he grew up before him, this is the, the prophecy, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, with grief as one of, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, the people of Israel are expecting this king to come and save them as their Messiah. They're expecting a knight to come in and, and, and save the people. But this isn't what, I, what Isaiah is saying. He said you're expecting the wrong person. And Isaiah is telling the people that, that, that they're waiting, but they're waiting for the wrong guy to come. It's not going to be who they think. It's going to be somebody completely different. And that they're going to reject the very Savior that is coming to save them. He's saying this Messiah is going to be a servant of rejection. And he's trying to point the people of, of Israel to that. He says he, he would not stand out in appearance. But there's nothing special that would attract anyone to who the servant is. In fact, his lifestyle would push people away. His very nature and character would be that that would make men and women want to hide their faces from who he was because he will be so perfect. His perfect love would challenge everything that everyone believed. It would challenge their religious views, their worldviews, Everything he did would challenge the people, and they would reject him. The suffering servant would be a common man. The servant of rejection would be a man of sorrows, and he will experience rejection from everything he knows. His family, his friends, his peers, this Messiah, this Savior for the people of Israel, will be rejected by everyone. He will not ride in on a white horse, and he will not be a great soldier 
that he would not have a kingdom on this earth, that he's ruling and reigning. And he will not lead an army as they thought. But he would come as a commoner. He would come as a child. He would come as, as a root that comes up out of dry ground. He will grow up before them. He will not swoop in and save this nation as a white knight. This is what Isaiah is telling the people, and it would have sounded absurd because for generation after generation, they are expecting this Messiah to come as this big king or general, and he's saying, you got it all wrong. You are waiting on the wrong guy to come. This guy who's coming, we are going to reject. And in Israel's rejection, it moves God to action, right? So what we see is the suffering servant has to die for the sake of the suffering sinner because they keep rejecting him. They're full of rejection. And the only way to satisfy God's wrath towards Israel is to take out all of his wrath and anger towards sin on this suffering servant. That's the only thing that will satisfy God's wrath. And the suffering servant steps up freely and gives his life to the cause, making him a servant of ransom. Our second point, second characteristic of the suffering servant. Keep reading me in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We thought that what he was doing was wrong, and that's why he was getting beaten is what they're saying. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and we've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. and Like a sheep that's before it shears the silence. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The suffering servant, the servant of ransom, has done nothing wrong yet he has been completely rejected by the nation of Israel and crushed in their place, right? Surely he has borne our grief, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? Isaiah is saying that surely he's borne our grief. Like surely the suffering servant is the result of this angel being able to come and touch my lips and say that I've been healed, that I'm no longer seen as a sinner. Surely it's this man's perfection, this man stepping in and freely ransoming himself as the suffering servant that has allowed this to happen. Isaiah, is what he's explaining how all this is possible. And what he's saying is that, again, is that God is going to take Israel's guilt and their rejection, and God is going to impute it on or put it upon the suffering servant. He's going to give their rejection and their sin to the suffering servant's account, like it was him that was actually rejecting him. But it's not. It's, it's Israel. And in Israel's sin, they're, they're so ignorant. In Israel's sin, they're going to think that the suffering servant is, is being rejected because of what he did. 
When all the while, it's because of who Israel is that he's freely ransoming himself in their place because they are so depraved and so full of sin that they, they can't see what's going on in front of their very own eyes. He will be a servant of ransom. And as a servant of ransom, he freely steps up to the plate in the place of Israel. And he takes all their punishment, all their sin, right? Like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter. He walks his path takes his beatings to the point of death with no complaints. This is who the suffering servant is. And he does all of this in an effort to restore Israel. Third characteristic of the suffering servant is that he is a servant of restoration. So let's keep reading um, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. He was actually considered to be one of the sinners, is what the text is telling us. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So just as the suffering servant takes all of Israel's sin and rejection and puts it upon himself, God is going to take all the perfection and righteousness that is the suffering servant. He's going to lay it onto Israel because of the work of the suffering servant servant because he was a servant of ransom. And he does all that to be a servant of restoration so that his perfection, again, can go and blanket all that is Israel. So when God sees Israel, the many that it says, the many that choose to believe in God, God will actually see the perfection that is the suffering servant. This is God's way of seeing Israel being restored. And this is the, this was always the plan. The plan was always to crush him, to crush this suffering servant so that he may restore the people. This is what Isaiah is telling the people, right? They, they've got it wrong. They're waiting on the wrong guy. They're going to reject him. And even in their rejection, he's going to ransom himself. And in ransoming himself, he's going to restore the people because of his work, not because of them. This whole process has to take place to satisfy God's anger towards sin. And it's a beautiful display of God. Because he doesn't choose to do away with creation. He chooses to crush the suffering servant. Do you see that this the beauty that comes in the love from God that, that is displayed in this? And it, it doesn't mean that this servant would sin. But the Israel's sin, again, is going to be imputed upon him or laid onto him or given to him for his account. It doesn't mean that Israel will ever actually be perfect. But it means that in God's eyes, when he sees the chosen, the, the, the people of Israel, that, he, that they will appear perfect in God's eyes. The suffering servant had to die for the sake of the suffering sinner so that he could intercede for Israel. It says he gives intercession. And so what we see is the suffering servant, even as Israel continues to sin and, and rebel and reject God, it's the suffering sinner who's going to be at God's side. He's going to say, don't look at them in their sin. 
But look at me and look at my perfection. See me whenever you look at them. You love them because you love me. You love them because of what I did for them in their place. I'm their substitute. Look at me. Love me. I'm the suffering sinner. Look at me. I hope that you're seeing this in the text. Let me share a story to give you a, a commercial break. And myself, apparently. <laughs> so, um, our pastor's name is Steve. He's not here. He's on a much-needed vacation. And about four months ago, he, um, he actually shared a story, some of you might remember, about a gentleman whose name is um, Arthur Walton. And Arthur tells the story of whenever he grew up as a kid, he's a little bit older gentleman, that in, in his class at school, they would actually um, get to read, like, they would say the Pledge of Allegiance, and they would get to read Scripture and, and read Scripture aloud. And then they would actually share in the Lord's Prayer, which is something that, that doesn't really happen too much anymore. And, um, and, it's, and it worked out well, but there was a large Jewish culture that was there. Um, and this Jewish culture just kind of felt offended because they weren't being included. And so it's not a big deal. All the family, the, the, the staff of the school, they get together and say, well, what can we do? And so they just decided that they would read out of the Old Testament because that's pretty common ground for Jewish individuals as well as Christian individuals. So that's what they did. And it worked out beautifully. Until one day, a kid comes home, and he's complaining to his parents, and he's like, my teacher was reading to me about Jesus today. And so the parents, as, as they should in, in their scenario, they get upset because they're Jewish, and they don't believe in him. And so they go to the school, and they call a meeting, and they say, you know, we want to see the reading plan. And what were you reading our kid? And what's awesome is this teacher was no more reading out of the New Testament than, than they could ever imagine. But in fact, this teacher was reading Isaiah 53 which is the scripture that we get to see today. And as you can see, Jesus is all over this text to the point where it made this Jewish family want to explore more about who Christ was. Just amazing. It's written 700 years before his birth, this prophecy. And Jesus is all over it. Okay? So now we've looked at Isaiah 53. Like We're kind of just keep with this Rocky Mountain illustration. We, we've packed our bags. We looked at Isaiah 6. We're, we've been in the road. On, we're on our road trip. We've explored Isaiah 53. We've seen the suffering servant off in the distance. And now we're finally getting to like our Rocky Mountain experience. And so what I want to do now is just sit in the weight of who Jesus is and how Jesus perfectly fulfills being the suffering servant. We're just going to stand in this at 12,000 feet and just let the majesty of who Jesus is just rock us. So if you could look at the overhead, John 1, 9 through 18. It says this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Servant of what? Rejection. You see this? Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, and get, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He allows them to become children of God by his own will. He willfully does what's necessary to make this happen, a servant of ransom. It's by his own will that he restores people being a servant of restoration. Okay, verse 14. And the word became flesh, and God became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15. John, a different John, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he 
whom I said, he comes after me, or sorry, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Jesus existed since the very beginning of time. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, servant of restoration. For the Jew was given law through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so when we stand on this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, we know that when we look at Isaiah 6, and Isaiah sees the glory that is God sitting on the throne, that he's actually looking at and seeing Jesus. Because no one has fully seen the absolute glory of God the Father. But they've seen him. God made Jesus known in, in person. He made Jesus known 700 years before he walked the earth to Isaiah. That's how Isaiah knows that that the Israel's sins are going to be cleansed. And that's why Isaiah can very confidently step up and say, here I am, send me. This is a message that, that needs to go. We need to take this message to the ends of the earth. This is what Isaiah sees in his commissioning. And he sees that, that Jesus is a servant of rejection. We're going to look at those same three characteristics that we've been doing. Rejection, ransom, restoration. But we're going to see how Jesus perfectly fulfills this. So just as, as Isaiah would have seen the glory of the Lord, the world, again, has seen his glory. He's walked. He came and made his home among us. He dwelt among us. But Israel, even in the time of, in the time of Christ specifically, rejected their suffering servant. He was still a servant of rejection. Everyone that he knew rejected him. His words, his ways, his worldviews, his religious beliefs challenged everyone to such a great extent that they could not help but reject him. The way he hung out with prostitutes and the marginalized and the people that were drunkards and gluttons. He hung out with these people in such a way that he got called drunk, a drunkard and a glutton and a sinner. Everything he did shamed the people that was around him. The way he loved people so radically made people want to turn their face from who he was. His perfect love. The one that was most worth the glory is the one that is most despised and rejected. And we see this all throughout the life of Christ. And we see this all throughout our lives. Literally, I mean, in mass media. I won't hit on this too much. There's a book that came out last week called Zealot. Number one top seller in New York Times. Number one seller on Amazon. Millions of copies are sold. The author says, I'm not writing to say Jesus isn't the Messiah. But in his first chapter, he writes to say Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's just a man who existed in history. Like millions of people will read this book. It should break our hearts that that's the number one top seller in New York Times. He is a servant of rejection. He has and will always be a servant of rejection. But he freely gives himself, making himself a servant of ransom. He gives himself freely to pay the penalty of the sin of Israel and the sins of us and the sins of those that will come long, long after us. He will freely ransom himself to the point of death. Despise everyone rejecting him. He could easily not done it, and he still ransoms himself freely. And, and Isaiah says in, in verse 10, we read, it was always the will of the Lord to crush him. Just given this beautiful display of God's love for his creation, he was willing to crush his perfect son in our place so that we might have eternal life with him. What a beautiful display. There is no greater display of love than in the cross of Christ, period. And in his willingness to crush him, 
um, to satisfy God's hatred of sin, um, Jesus will become a servant of restoration, and he is a servant of restoration. He perfectly fulfills all the characteristics of the suffering servant. Right? So God no longer sees our sin, our rejection, but instead he sees the, the perfection of who Jesus is. Because Jesus could perfectly fulfill this role and perfectly fulfill all the laws that were given to him and perfectly fulfill all the prophecies, right? he in turn is a servant of restoration because his perfection is given to us. It blankets us. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. So don't think that. We're still going to be full of sin and rejection, but at least his, his perfection blankets us. So whenever God sees us, he sees Jesus. So whenever we sin or we fall short or we have these shortcomings in our life and we struggle with pride and anxiety and, and we want to be our own God and, and steal his glory because it's all about me and we live in our selfish worlds, Jesus knows this is going to happen. He says, don't look at them. Look at me. I'm, I perfectly walked in their place as their substitute. I perfectly restored them for the many that believe in him. He's a servant of restoration. He doesn't just restore the sins of humans. Whenever Adam and Eve sinned in, in Genesis 3, we've talked about many, many weeks ago, all of creation is, in, is infected with sin by nature. And he perfectly crushes sin because Jesus himself has been perfectly crushed in our place as our substitute. He perfectly fulfills the role of the suffering servant. Jesus had to crush the suffering, sinner, suffering servant for the sake of the suffering sinner. It's a mouthful. So let's look at application. So what does that mean for, for us, right? So we've, we've seen the vision of, of who the suffering servant is. We've, we've got a picture. We've experienced the suffering servant, right? We've been to 12,000 feet, had that experience. Now we need to see that we need to act accordingly, right? If, 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 if we hear these truths and we believe these truths, there's a call to action. There's a responsibility that takes place. We need to act accordingly. Not because we ourselves are, are great at acting anyway, but because of Jesus, again, perfectly steps in and fulfills our role. All right, here it is. We are servants of rejection. We're called to be servants of rejection. By Our default is to reject God. We are Israel. We love rejecting God. And we belittle God in our minds so much that we actually belittle our need for a Savior. We belittle the, our need for grace, and we belittle the extent to which Jesus had to be crushed in our place as our substitute. We are servants of rejection. We're no different than they were in Israel. But we're called to be servants of rejection in the sense of where we reject the sin that is in our lives, not the God that brings us, that gives us hope. And so for some of you, your rejection is um, just of God completely, Right? You just reject God as the whole idea of God. And in your pride, you actually think that you can get through life on your own. I mean, you, and you won't do any research, but you might, I mean, you might do some blogging, maybe put out some real cunning, cool tweets, or put something real flashy out on Facebook to, uh, to sound intelligent. But the reality of it is, is, and I mean this in the fullness sense of the definition, you're literally just swimming in your own ignorance. Just swimming in it, going nowhere, not pursuing anything, not learning anything, not being educated, not asking good questions, just focused on self and your ability to sound smart, maybe, to the few that are reading what you have to say. You reject God completely. For some, you're Christians and, and you, um, you still reject God. You maybe believe in him, but you probably reject some of what Scripture has to say about it. 
Some of that's just a little too heavy, and that, and that stuff challenges my worldview. Right? I want to let my worldview impact the way I read Scripture instead of letting Scripture impact the way I view the world. And so your lack of pursuit, again, just swimming in ignorance, not pursuing discipleship, not trying to grow in your relationship. And then you wonder why you don't understand or know much about God. He's not really present in my life, yet you're not spending your time in prayer or being counseled or seeking people out or being in community. You're just swimming, and I want this to mean what I want it to mean to me. And if that doesn't work for you, that's fine. Because I'm right, and it's my world, and it's my God, and, and that's all there is to it. Right? And lastly, I mean, there's Christians that are living missionally, right? And they're sharing the gospel, and they're out, and they have adopted a nonprofit organization, and, and they're serving people meals and casseroles, and, 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 and they're all like, I do this, Corey, but I do this, and I do that. And that's the reality of it, is it's all about you. What do I get in return? Why don't people serve me? Why don't people watch my kids or, or bring me meals or make me food? And you're trying to serve yourself. You're trying to be your own God in that moment. And, and you're actually rejecting all that is God. Instead of believing that you don't serve people because you get something in return, but you serve people because you've been served the fullness of Christ in the gospel. That's why we serve people. Not so we get a casserole. Because we receive the inheritance of eternal life and our salvation for who Christ is. This is the truth that we need to believe. And it sounds like I'm hammering on you. I'm not. I just, I want you to, to see that we are Israel. And by default, if we are Israel, then we have received grace from God in Jesus and the cross. He has stepped into our place and our brokenness and covered us with his perfection. It's not about us. Every Sunday we say it's not about your performance. It's about the performance of Christ. I hope that you're seeing this. I hope that you just don't feel hammered on and just full of sin and wretched, which, I mean, you kind of are, but you've also been given this perfection. Do you see that? Like, he blankets you with his perfection. He steps into your mess in your place. That's grace and love, and there's no greater display of God's love than the cross. That's where it all takes place. And so we need, instead of being servants of rejection, we need to be servants, or servants of rejecting God. We need to reject sin and be servants of ransom. That's what I'm trying to get to. So we are who we are because Jesus is who he is. And we're called to freely give ourselves, to freely ransom ourselves just as Christ did. And what I mean by that is that that we've been given a a calling. We've actually been given a command to lay down our lives, to ransom our priorities and ransom our comforts and ransom everything that's about us so that we may share this message with the world. There's a lot of ransoming that needs to take place. We're called to freely ransom our, our sin and our guilt and anxiety and that tension that happens when I say we're called, called to ransom our comforts that you feel in your chest. I feel that when I say, I mean, talking about myself, and we're called to ransom though and freely give that stuff away so that we can experience the gift of sharing the gospel with people. We're called to freely ransom our comforts and reorient our lives around other people to love other people, to love neighbors, to meet people in community, to share the gospel. We live in a community where 80% of people don't believe in Jesus. There's a lot of work to be done. A half a million people openly confess in the Metro East to not believe in it. We need to ransom our comforts and pursue those people. This is a huge mission field. We need to be like Isaiah and say, here I am, send me. I believe this. I want to go, send me. We don't have to fully understand in it, understand all of it, but we can, we can swim in this, and we can learn, and we can grow together. We have to ransom ourselves. And, and in doing so, last point, we will become servants of restoration. 
So in our rejection of sin and our ransoming of our, comfort, our comforts, we will be servants of restoration. Um, and in doing so, we will get to see lives transformed. We'll get to see our own lives transformed as we grow more into the image of who God is. We'll get to see the lives of our friends and, and family and loved ones transformed. We get to see people healed from disease and healed from addiction, healed from adultery. We'll see men begin to love and lead their wives again, and we'll see wives lead and love their, their husbands again. We'll see kids growing up in Christ-centered homes, and kids be adopted because people have ransomed their own priorities, and they want to invite people into their home. What greater display of the gospel than, than adoption? We get, people will do that. They will give their money to things like that, to mission. Not only will they give money to mission, but they'll give themselves to mission, to being missional, to going to the ends of the earth and feeling the, the command to go be missional. Some of you in this room will get that calling. And some of you will submit to it. You will ransom all that you have to go and share this gospel message with the unreached people. <laughs> I, I'm excited for you. But it comes with, you have to ransom, reject sin, ransom your comforts, and be a servant of restoration. What greater calling than to, than to get to go share this with the world, to free people from themselves, to let them know that it's all about their Savior and not at all about them. We get to become servants of restoration because we ourselves will be restored as we submit to what this message is. And that is that Jesus perfectly fulfills the role of the suffering servant. Despite his rejection, he ransomed everything for us. And in doing so, he lived the perfect life. He died the most horrific and worst death we could ever imagine. They buried him. He rose again, showing his defeat and power over sin. And in turn, restarting the restoration process of the whole world. And he's coming back to continue his restoration process. And it will be perfect peace and shalom whenever he comes back. What a cool message to share with people. And you guys can do this. All right, I'm going to put some words up on the screen, or words that will make sentences for you to look at and reflect on. Um, and this is our time of, time of response is what we do here at Trailhead. And so we, um, we just sit, ask you to just sit and kind of spend some time in prayer and read through these, um, some of the, the questions I've made up. Um, and it's also our time where we take offering. And so if you're new to Trailhead, um, we're excited you're here. Like we said, this is just our gift to you. Um, we ask that, um, that you don't feel obligated to give by any means, but you would um, fill out the worship. There's a worship response card. You should have gotten a bulletin. There's probably one on the seat next to you. Um, we'd love to know that you're here. Um, it's not something we take lightly. We don't just throw them in a box when you're done. We as leaders, um, we set and, and we pray over those cards. And if you want to be contacted, we'll contact you. If you don't, we won't. If you have prayer requests, um, put them on there. We set as a team and, and we pray over these cards. We pray with you. Um, for those of you that are seasoned, um, Trailhead veterans, this is our time to partner together as a local church and, and to give joyfully and sacrificially um, to the advancement of the gospel. We, we partner with numerous church planning organizations. We support numerous church planners such as myself. We, uh, we get to have a great service like this and resource our community groups and, and give money away to people in the community that are in need. And, and it's all because we give joyfully and sacrificially because you recognize, hopefully, that Jesus has given himself for you. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll get that started. God, we uh, pray and thank you so much for, for all that you've done um, in our place, God, as our substitute. I pray, God, that, um, 
that we would learn to see you as Isaiah got to see you, God, and that, and that there would be a part of us that is just so blown away just by who you are and the bigness of who you are, that, that like those seraphim angels, that we would, be, we would just have to look away from who you are. God, I pray that we would recognize our, our brokenness, that we are, um, that we would say, woe is me, and just come unraveled and undone as Isaiah did, but also just, just remember the grace that's been given to us to such a great extent that we say, here I am, send me. God, you are the perfect suffering servant in our place as our substitute, and we love you and give you all the praise. Amen.